Hey, this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus no matter what you're going through today. In Mark 1, Jesus' ministry grew exponentially, like crazy, all of a sudden. It would have been easy for Jesus to get caught up in it all, but he didn't. He was able to keep his mind, his purpose, intensely focused. What does Jesus do to keep that focused mentality, and what can I learn about focus in my life? Yeah, we've been doing this study since April, and we're in week nine, still in chapter one. Uh, we are going through slowly, and uh, we are looking at what Jesus does. In fact, today, we're on our fourth Sunday, looking at this same day, this one day that Jesus spends in Capernaum at the synagogue, right? This one day, he's there, and it's Sabbath day. He and his newly called disciples, they go to the synagogue, and Jesus teaches with exousia. It's not just authority like a job title. It's, the, uh, ex- it's teaching out of the experience of being God himself, the substance of being God himself. And so he's teaching with this authority, so much authority, that the demons challenge him. They challenge his authority, but Jesus doesn't negotiate terms. He just shuts it down and casts the demon right out. And this is an amazing thing. Everyone's astounded, astounded, astonished, amazed. I mean, there's all this descriptive language of how the people are just blown away by Jesus's exousia. And then they, they all leave. Everybody goes and starts talking about what Jesus is doing. But Jesus goes back to Simon Peter's home. And there he heals Simon's mother-in-law. This is another astonishing thing that happens. uh, And she begins to serve there. And it's the same day. It's the same day. It's this crazy, insane day. But then it's at sundown. It's at the end of the day. That's when everything starts to change for Jesus. So we've already seen that this day is crazy insane, but it's now at sunset that things really, really go the way that nobody would plan. You know, some days you, you know what to expect and you think you've got a plan for the day. And some days everything just goes off the rails and it's not what you were planning at all. Does anybody else have that in your life? Yeah, I know um, in the early hour, we had, uh, we were visited by Global Youth Ministry. It's a group of people that put on youth camps all summer long, and I used to be one of them. I worked with Global for a while. They're located up on top of Fort Mountain, right outside of town here, and I used to work for them for a little while. I I actually helped with doing camps, and one summer, I was on travel staff. Uh, They got two staffs. One staff does camps up there on the mountain all summer long, and one staff travels and does camps all over the place. And we, we have camp in the summertime, June and July, right now. And it's a grueling time. I mean, the days are long and nonstop. Your first meeting in the morning is with youth pastors at 7.15 in the morning. And you're going all day at uh, worship services and activities and all kinds of stuff going on all day long. And they all wrap up at 10 o'clock at night, but oh, it's not over. You still got a staff debrief 
debrief meeting at the end of that and sometimes that goes to 11 or even 12 o'clock at night and then your next meeting is at 7.15 in the morning and you've been going, 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 going. It's just crazy. It's an insane thing. Now, when you're on staff with Global, you love what God is doing in the lives of campers and and adults and even staffers. I mean, you love what God is doing, but you kind of live for the weekend because you just want to get a couple of hours of sleep. You know, you just want to get back and stop for a minute before you hit it hard again on Monday morning. So I remember I was an old guy even then. You know, I was on staff with them. I was kind of the staff leader and um, I was in charge of making sure camp happened when we were on the road. And it, it was the end of the summer, it was in July, and we were kind of coming back, and we had two more camps to do, uh, and we were going to do them here locally, and we were going to start one of them on Saturday. So the Florida camp that we were at was ending on Friday, and we had to start camp the next day on Saturday. So we had a really short turnaround. And we were in Florida, so, you know, what you do is you end camp, you know, around noon, and then you kind of start breaking everything down and putting everything away. You, you pack the trailer, you load everything up, and then you travel back home to Global on Fort Mountain. So I had a plan. I had a plan. My plan was to do the eight or so, nine or so hours of driving with all the equipment and with all the staffers and hope to get back up on the mountain by maybe midnight. So if we could just get back by midnight, maybe we'll get a few hours in and we got to hit it hard the next day. So that's my plan. And my plan worked for a while. But we're traveling back in our little caravan of vehicles, and we get all the way back up through Florida, all the way back up. You know, you come up through Atlanta, and then you know what happens. You merge from 75 onto 575, and you go through Kennesaw and Woodstock and Canton. And then there's something that happens by the time you merge from 575 to 515. You watch all of the lights of civilization fade into your rearview mirror, right? You're way far away from all civilization, and you go through ball ground, you go through Jasper, and then it's midnight, remember, it's midnight, and we get north of Jasper, we get to about Philadelphia Road, and you know, that's that zone where there's nothing. There's, between Jasper and here in LJ, there's just nothing there on 515 at midnight. And so we're, we're cruising along, and then all of a sudden the van I'm driving full of staffers and pulling a trailer just stops. It just breaks the heck down. And it's dark, and it's midnight, and we're in the middle of nowhere. Fortunately, we're kind of close, but we're in the middle of nowhere. And so we had to come up with another plan. The plans are derailed. We're not going to make it back by midnight. We try to do this and try to do that. It's just not going to work. So we're going to have to leave the vehicle. And so fortunately, we had enough room in the other vehicles in the caravan to stuff all of our last of our equipment and all of our staffers just kind of, you know, stuff them in there. We had room for all of them, but one. Yep, so I watched them drive on up 515, and I'm waving goodbye after midnight all by myself on the side of the road in the dark. And I just, had to, I just had to wait there until somebody could get up because we were calling up to Global. Nobody answered the phone at midnight. Nobody was answering any phones. So we, I just sent them on up there. 
And I had to wait until somebody came back to get me, which didn't happen until about 2 o'clock in the morning. And we had to leave the van. They took me up. But that wasn't the end. You know, we got back up to the mountain. It was about 3 a.m. when we got back up to the mountain. And then I don't sleep on the mountain. I sleep at my house in Kusawati. So it took about another hour for me to get home. And then I got home at like four, a little after four o'clock in the morning, just enough time to fall asleep, wake up, and then go right back up for the next day. Sometimes your plans don't work the way you planned, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? Does anybody else have that? Yeah, sometimes your plans just don't work the way you plan. And that's kind of what happens with Jesus here. What you wouldn't expect happens. So Jesus has had this incredible day there uh, at the synagogue. And that's when it happened. First blank on your page. Jesus' ministry exploded. Jesus's ministry exploded up until this point. He's been a relatively obscure traveling rabbi. And people are starting to notice him. But all of a sudden, after the teaching in the synagogue, after the demon is cast out, and after he heals Simon's mother-in-law, now all of a sudden things go crazy. Look at it with me, excuse me, in Mark 1, 32. That evening... At sundown, they, that's all the people from around town, brought to Jesus all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, the door to Simon Peter's house. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Huh, just like that last demon, he wouldn't permit him to speak. So here it's supposed to be a quiet evening after Sabbath. Sabbath ends when the sun goes down. We'll be talking a lot more about Sabbath in the next few weeks. But so the Sabbath ends and he's supposed to have just a nice evening to relax before hitting it again the next day. But all of a sudden, a crowd of people shows up. The whole town comes to the door. So everything from this point on, everything from right here on in the book of Mark, Jesus's ministry is characterized by lots of crowds. Everywhere he goes, the crowds are following and pressing in on him. So the forecast for Jesus from here is very crowdy. That went over a lot better in the early service. Uh, yeah, they weren't awake. No, they're my favorite now. <laughs> so everything all of a sudden gets very, very crowd-ish, crowdy. In fact, it gets so crazy that they got to start making plans around the crowds. Everybody wants to press in and get a piece of Jesus. And you see Jesus working with the crowds. He's healing and casting out demons, and he's doing all the miraculous stuff. Uh, and sometimes he's ministering like he's doing on this night until late at night, just giving of himself, pouring himself out. Quick survey of the crowds in Mark, Mark 6, 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. They had been sent out, and they came back. And he said to them, okay, you've been with the crowds. Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while for many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat they couldn't even stop for a meal the crowds were so 
crazy. So they couldn't even stop to eat. Didn't even have a minute, to, a minute of leisure to even have lunch. Away in, a, in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. They had to get out in the middle of nowhere. And now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. This is a group of people that were so intent to get up against Jesus that they would run around a lake to get to where he was going. I mean, I can't even get my wife to show up in church on time. And these people are willing to run around a lake to get to Jesus. In Mark 7, then Jesus left Galilee and he went north to the region of Tyre. He didn't want anyone to know which house he was staying in, but he couldn't keep it a secret. He's trying to just have a minute. He's trying to just be able to get some sleep. He's trying to dodge the crowd when he can, but he couldn't even keep his Airbnb a secret. In Mark 3, 9, he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him. Look, they got to have a boat ready for him uh, because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So the crowd is so crowdy that they got to have a getaway boat ready just in case they're going to crush Jesus. Dude, the crowds were a real thing. The good news is that the crowds loved him. I mean, I'm glad it wasn't a riot. I'm glad it wasn't an angry mob, but they loved him. In Mark 1, it says that he went out and began, sorry, it means the person who had just been healed went out freely to talk about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. The crowds were so crazy, he couldn't come into a town, but he was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. In Mark 2, many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. In Mark 3, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from, look at this, from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. I mean, everywhere Mark can think of, he's telling you that people are coming from all over the place. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. In Mark 4, again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him. So he got into the boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching, uh, he spoke. Okay, he said things to them. So he's teaching from the boat just to be a little bit away from the crowd. In Mark 5, when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was beside the sea. In Mark 7, they were completely amazed and said again and again, everything he does is wonderful. He even makes the deaf to hear, and he gives speech to those who cannot speak. They loved him. They followed him everywhere. They chased him around all over the place, and Jesus was always at their beck and call. He was always at the mercy of the crowd. He was always teaching, and he was always healing, and he was always casting out. In other words, next blank on your page, Jesus served tirelessly. Jesus served tirelessly. He was always willing to continue to love them and serve them and give more and more of himself.
This is one of the reasons I like the gospel of Mark. Mark's is the gospel of action. You know, he really doesn't dwell too much on the teaching of Jesus. I just, I'm a child of the 80s, and I like the action, you know. So I'm really excited that Indiana Jones 5 is coming out in just a couple of weeks. Come on, children of the 80s, unite. Indiana Jones, I'm cautiously hopeful about that movie. Just because Disney destroys everything else they touch doesn't mean doesn't mean they're going to destroy Indiana Jones. I, they kind of did that already in the last movie, as far as I'm concerned. Anybody else with me? Does anybody even know who Indiana Jones is? <laughs> I can't wait. I'm going to be in the theater, and I'm going to watch that one. I, I can't wait. Okay, so Mark is all about the action. He's always got Jesus going somewhere, doing something. There's always something going on. His key word is the word immediately. He's always moving and doing things right now, right now, immediately. You know, so he's not so much on the teaching of Jesus. Now, I love the teaching of Jesus, obviously, but Mark focuses on the action. Matthew and Luke, they, they give us chapters on the teaching. Of, I mean, like the Sermon on the Mount is several chapters long. Mark leaves it out altogether. He just kind of gives us snippets of Jesus' teaching, and he's all about the action. But even though Mark's not all about the teaching, he's clear about one thing. He's clear that the gospel message is the reason Jesus does everything he does. He's really clear with us that it's the gospel message that Jesus is all about. Jesus is here to bring the message of the kingdom of God. In Mark 1, 14, we see the thesis that Jesus has for all of his teaching. Um, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is what Jesus was all about. In Mark 2, when he returned to Capernaum after several days, it was reported that he was at the home and many gathered together. The crowds came so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. In Mark 3, uh, he appointed 12 so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have the authority to cast out demons. So, so in other words, it wasn't that just Jesus wanted to proclaim the message. He wanted to make sure others were proclaiming it on his behalf. So in Mark 6, they went out and proclaimed that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. They were preaching and they were also healing and casting out. This is so important to Jesus. It's such an important thing that when Jesus is talking about the end times and he's talking about judgment day arriving, he says in Mark 13 that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. In other words, I'm not going to wrap all this up until everybody has a chance to hear the gospel. This is foundational for Jesus. He wasn't just here to serve us by healing and by casting out, but for him, the gospel was the most important thing. Jesus proclaimed it, and we follow in his footsteps. You know, I could sit here and I could, 
I could be like the popular teachers on television and online. And I could tell you about all the things that you need to do to achieve a better you. And I could tell you about how your life could be better if you'll just implement all these practices. I was reading a book just this week, and it was talking about how if you'll just start practicing the teachings of Jesus, your life, it literally said your life will get better. And I'm here to tell you that that is a lie. All of that is a lie. Because if you're not preaching the gospel first, then all you're really teaching people how to do is to work really hard to somehow earn God's favor. That's the law talking, not grace. You hear me? And there's a huge distinction. I'm all about applying and obeying all the teachings of Jesus, but dude, without the gospel first, it's all just law. Hello? And unfortunately, we in the church have forgotten the fact, we've forgotten the fact that all of us were created lovingly by God in his beautiful image, that you were designed to represent him in your own unique way, the way only you can represent him right? So he makes you in his image to represent him here in this world. That's why he put Adam and Eve in the garden so that they could subdue the earth, bring it under their authority because they so represented God that when they brought the world under their authority, they were really bringing it under God's authority, right? So they represented God. But the problem is that when Lucifer came along and accuses God of not really being worthy of being God, he says, you could be your own God. You could rise up and see like God. God's holding out on you. If you'll just take the fruit of the tree, you'll be just like him and you won't need him anymore. And so we chose to side with the evil one instead of siding with the one true God. We rebelled against God and we became a race of rebels against him, right? And the punishment for treason is what? Death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. So what we all deserve now is swift, severe punishment from God. We, we deserve this punishment, and we're living in it. We live in our sin. We waller in it, and we forget how bad it really is, how awful of crimes we actually commit against God. And we deserve to die as a result. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus comes here and he goes to the cross and it's on that cross where this man who had no sin of his own, uh, uh, he willingly took all of the shame and the guilt and the pain of all the sin I had ever committed and you had ever committed. He took him on himself and he dies with them. He came here to kill your sin and he took it out in that murder, suicide on the cross. He took it to the grave, but three days later he walked away from it. He left it there in the grave and now he is alive today to bring you new life to bring you abundant life to begin to change you back into his image that's what it means to be a Christian it doesn't just mean that you've received justification by praying a prayer and now you're good it means you're also receiving his sanctification where he is transforming you into what he has designed you to become 
Can I get an amen on that? That's what he's doing in each and every one of us. And that's the gospel. That's the good news. And we boldly proclaim it. We aren't scared. We aren't scared. We're not going to hold back because it's offensive in this world. We're going to let Jesus be the stumbling block, not us. We're going to let him be the one that defines who we are, and we're going, to, we're going to point our fingers to him, and we're going to praise and worship him regardless of what the world wants us to do. Can I get an amen? They want us to bow and worship at the idol of not just materialism anymore, but they want us to, to bow and worship at the idol of political correctness. They want us to bow and worship you know, at the idol of the cultural expectations of our day and critical theory and all that stuff, and we're not going to do that. We're going to worship him because we've repented from the things of this world, and now we're living new lives. That's who we are, and that's what Jesus does. He talks about the gospel. He's always preaching the gospel and then casting out and healing. In fact, what we see in Mark is that Jesus clearly establishes a pattern and that pattern, you'll see it repeated all throughout Mark, most of Mark, and you'll see it all throughout the rest of the Gospels. And here's the pattern. It's the next blank on your page. Jesus' pattern is preach and prove. Everywhere he goes, whatever the crowd size, he'll preach the Gospel, and then he'll back it up by showing his miracles. He'll tell you about the kingdom of God, and then he'll validate his message by the miraculous signs and wonders. We see it in Mark. Look at a few examples here. Mark 1, he cast out the demon in the synagogue after preaching the gospel, and the word spreads. He healed Simon's mother-in-law. He healed many and cast out many demons until late at night. He heals a man with leprosy. He heals the paralyzed man. He restores the uh, man's deformed hand, and he heals many people with uh, sickness and he casts out many demons uh, he casts out the demon legion or the demons legion and he heals the woman with the bleeding and he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead all this in Mark and, and, and something happens in Mark I mean you see this he preaches the gospel and he proves it it's always preaching, proven, preaching, proven until about the middle of Mark there's 14 chapters in Mark and all the miracles that happen in Mark, you see all, it's just miracle after miracle after miracle, countless miracles. Mark will say stuff like he healed and cast out until late at night. He's proven it till late at night, or they don't take a break. He's just countless miracles up until about the middle of Mark, and then something happens. There's a turn that takes place, and all of a sudden, Jesus' pattern changes. Countless miracles in the first half of Mark, and then you get to the back half, and all of a sudden, there's almost no miracles. What is Mark showing us here? Don't worry, we'll see clearly what this big turn is when we get to the middle of Mark in the year 2047. <laughs> Sorry, I just go slow. I'm in the re remedial pastor is what I say. <laughs> but for Jesus and his disciples, they were all about preaching and proving. It was the gospel and then the results of the gospel. It was preaching and proving miracles. Haven't you seen that in your life? You heard the gospel, and hasn't Jesus proven that he's worthy of being God by doing miracles in your life? 
I mean, for me and you, it may not always be, you know, healing and casting out. It may not be those highly super, super visible ones all the time. But dude, I can tell you, I can, I can tell you that right here in this church, I have witnessed miraculous forgiveness. I've seen people choose to forgive someone who has hurt them so irreparably that they'll never be the same. But they choose to take the God path and forgive despite the pain. Dude, that's a miracle. I've watched Janet in Celebrate Recovery how God has broken the chains of addiction in people's lives and they get past their past. I've watched people walk free after years, after decades of walking in chains to addiction. I've seen them walk free from that stuff. Dude, that is a miracle. I know one guy that God has miraculously changed him from being kind of a, I guess you'd say he was a self-centered jerk to becoming one of the most generous, loving givers that I've ever met. I've watched as God has miraculously restored marriages. I've seen miracle after miracle after miracle about how the gospel enters someone's life and then the miracles just happen. God is proven time and time again of being worthy of being God. Now, there's a thing that happens right here, okay? So they're, they're serving tirelessly. Jesus is just serving the people and it's crazy until late, 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 late at night. And then Mark tells us something about the next morning that he really wants you to catch, okay? This is a key thing. Remember, Mark is showing us who Jesus is more than he's outright telling us who Jesus is. And what we see next ought to be a real ding eye-opener to who Jesus is for anybody that reads this. A lot of times when you read commentaries or you hear sermons on this passage, they skip over this pretty quickly, but I think this is one of the most profound things about Jesus. It's in Mark 1, 35. Watch this. Late night, but rising early the next morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there, what did he do? He prayed. There he prayed. Remember, Mark is showing us something. He wants us to see who Jesus is. And any good Jewish person that reads this verse ought to immediately recognize something about Jesus. One of the messianic prophecies in Isaiah tells us a key fact about the Messiah. And here's what Isaiah says, speaking on behalf of the chosen servant of God. Isaiah says, The sovereign Lord has given me his words of wisdom so that I know how to comfort the weary. Morning by morning he wakens me and opens my understanding to his will. The sovereign Lord has spoken to me and I have listened. I have not rebelled or turned away. 
any good Jew reading about Jesus being up early the next day would recognize that this is a messianic thing, that he's getting up and he's devoting time to seek out the voice of his father. We know from reading the Gospels that this was Jesus' pattern. He was frequently getting away to just spend time alone with God. I like the way Luke says it in Luke 5, 16. Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. Jesus had this pattern of preaching and proving, and it was a tiring, relentless, always-on pattern, preaching and proving. Dude, I'm telling you, I just, I'm, I'm nowhere near Jesus, but I just preached three short sermons on a Sunday, and I'm wiped. I mean, I get home, and I'm kind of like, I'm kind of in a coma for a little while. Ask my wife. I don't know what's going on. But Jesus is preaching, and he's proven, and he's preaching, and he's proven. He's healing and casting out all the time. He's just pouring out himself all the time. This is his pattern. This pattern is only sustained by seeking out the voice of his Father. In fact, next blank on your page, Jesus' life is defined by knowing his Father. This is what empowered him. This is what sustained his pattern of preaching and proving. In fact, it's this key practice of Jesus that helped Jesus to make every decision that he made. Look what Mark tells us about this. He goes out and he's spending time listening to his father. And before you know it, in verse 36, Simon and those who were with him searched for him. They wake up in the morning, huh, all right, oh, the crowd's here. Everybody's, everybody's already pressing in. Where's Jesus? Time to start healing. Time to start casting out. Time to be preaching. Where's Je They couldn't find him. So they go out, and they're searching around for Jesus. And he's probably out praying. And so they searched for him, and they found him, and they said to him, where you been, Jesus? What, what do you think you're doing out here? Everyone is looking for you. The crowd's already pressed in, man. Everyone wants something of you. What are they telling him? Come on back, come on back, come on back. You gotta get back into town. Look at this crowd that's built. Look at your platform that has exploded. I mean, good grief, if we could just get this many hits on our social media, we'd be famous. We'd be Facebook famous. Jesus, you are really, your platform has exploded. People know who you are and they're coming. Look at all the needs you can meet. Look at all the ministry you can have. Look at how you can change so many lives. I mean, look at the crowd. Of course, we need to get back and we need to grow this even more. Of course he's saying that. Now listen, remember, Simon is committed to Jesus's mission. He's committed his life to He's walked away from his fishing business to follow Jesus. And Simon wants these obvious needs to be met. And so he's saying, the crowd has spoken. Come on, they want you back in Capernaum now. But look at what Jesus says in verse 38. He said to them, he said, nah, he says, let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went all throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues 
and casting out demons. What's going on here? Simon Peter says, come back into town. And Jesus says, no, nah, let's go on. Simon Peter's speaking on behalf of the crowd. And Jesus is saying, no, nah, let's go on. Dude, as far as we can tell by looking at the scripture, Jesus doesn't even go back to town. He just says, no, come on, we're just going to go. We're going to go. And they just leave. What's Jesus doing here? I mean, think about all the crowd that's pressing in. They're watching the disciples walk off into the woods. They're like, wait a minute. What? I thought, Je I thought Jesus was going to heal all our illnesses. I thought he was going to fix all our stuff. I thought he was going to take care. Jesus, I thought you loved us. And Jesus and his disciples walking away. What's going on here? Listen to me. There's, there's times in your life where you need to seek out good, godly counsel. I believe in good, godly counsel. But so often, we good, Jesus-loving, well-meaning Christians, we listen to the voice of the crowd more than we listen to the voice of God. And sometimes, believer, sometimes you get good advice from a friend, but you've got to learn to discern the difference between good advice and God advice. You got to learn to discern the difference between common, good, godly-ish wisdom and the voice of God calling you somewhere different. And when God calls you somewhere, it hurts. It's a big vision, but it hurts. Sometimes you got to walk away from family. I know. I know. God called us to come to Elijah. I didn't want to leave. <laughs> I didn't want to leave my friends. I didn't want to leave my family. I didn't want to leave a good ministry, but God called us to LJ. I had to walk away. Didn't make any sense to anybody around us at the time. But sometimes you got to learn to discern the voice of God in your life. I remember it was 2008. The Orchard Church did not exist yet. And God had laid on our heart a vision to plant a church in LJ, a different kind of church in LJ. He'd called us to something really specific and we just couldn't get past it. And so I, was, I had been doing my research and I, I was really determined that I needed a lot of help. And so I went to meet with several of the big known church planting organizations. These are groups of people whose heart is all about planting churches all over the place. And they fund and they resource and they coach and they support churches being planted all over the place. And I was like, I need help. So I went to several church planting organizations and I sat down with them and I told them that God's called me to plant a church in LJ, Georgia. And they all told me all of them told me a variation of the same song. They were like, you know, why would you ever plant a church in LJ, Georgia, of all places? One of them said, you know, you'll never pry those country people out of their country churches. I was like, what do you, what do you think I'm doing this? For? I'm not doing this to pry. I don't want to divide any churches. I don't want to steal someone away from the place God's planted them. I want to reach people that nobody's reaching by doing things nobody's doing. But they couldn't hear it. They didn't understand. And so all of them, all of them said to me, they said, well, 
if you're really gung-ho about it, you know, we can't support you. But if you just think God's calling you to this, you should just settle for having a house church. Do it in your living room because you'll never break about a dozen, maybe 20 people. Not going to happen in LJ. And I am so grateful that I listened to the voice of God and not the voice of the crowd. I'm so grateful. Praise the Lord. And I tear up sometimes when I think about those lights on that evangelism wall that are lighting up because of the ministry of this church. I literally missed up every time we baptize people right here and I hear their God's story and I'm so grateful, God, that I listen to you and not the voice of the crowd. Every time we go out to Tower Road and we're feeding hungry kids out there serving our community, I'm grateful that I was able to hear the voice of God and not the voice of the crowd. What will God use you to do if you just listen to his voice? What's he calling you to? What's his vision for your life? Do you know what it is? Do you know the purpose he's put you on this planet for? Or is the noise of the crowd crowding out the voice of God in your life? What could he do if we could all hear his voice the way Jesus heard his voice. What does this look like in your life? Do you spend time listening to God? Do you have a way, a plan, a place, a time to be able to hear him in your life? Or have you resigned to letting the crowd crowd him right out? Have you resigned to let the crowd speak and make demands instead of listening to the voice of your father? The psalmist says, but as for me, I will sing about your power. Each morning I will sing with joy about your unfailing love, for you have been my refuge, a place of safety when I'm in distress. Oh, my strength, to you I sing praises. For you, oh God, you are my refuge the God who shows me unfailing love. He's our strength. He's our refuge. He's the one that sustains the patterns in your life. Can you hear him? I, I won't say I have this down perfectly, but I've, I, I'm doing better. I, I'm doing better at this than I have in the past. One of the, one of the ways that I practice this is I, I need a, a place and I need a time. Because if I just kind of hope it'll happen, it's never going to happen, right? If I, don't, if I don't set a time and a place, it's not going to happen. So I got a time and a place. So for me, it's early in the morning, but it's not first thing in the morning. Because, you know, for, I don't know about you, first thing in the morning, my brain doesn't quite click into gear yet. Does anybody else have that? Takes me a minute. So what I do is I try to be at the gym by about 6 o'clock in the morning and I run for a little while on the elliptical, get my heart rate up, you know, and then I, I work out with a friend that shows up around 6.30, and uh, it's a great time of sweating, and <laughs> we just have a good time in the morning. Try to get cleaned up in the shower, I take a shower, and then I get here to my office where it's quiet, and there's nobody around. And I try to be there by around 7.30, and that's my time, that's my place. I got about an hour and a half before everybody else gets in the office. And there I can 
stop and listen and spend time with him and hear his voice hear what he wants me to do where he wants me to go sometimes it's it's just a few verses and a, and a prayer sometimes I feel like God changes the direction of my day sometimes maybe even the direction of my life that's my time 7.30 in the morning in my office what's your time what's your place how does that work or are you just like the rest of the crowd just kind of scrambling to get to him when he's you know available Romans 12 says don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think give him time to work on your thought patterns to change the way that you think about what he's doing, to change the way that you'll listen to his mind. So how can you get started? Now look, I got, a, I got a whole class I do. I'll probably do it this fall on meditating on the word of God and listening to his voice. I've, I've got a whole thing I do on that. We'll, we'll do it on a Sunday night coming up. But for now, uh, I'm kind of gripped by Philippians 4. It's one of my favorite passages. And here's a way you can start. Philippians 4, 8 says this. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. A great way to start is to focus your mind, fix your thoughts on what is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, and admirable, praiseworthy, and excellent. Because too often your mind is pulled in all the wrong directions. What are the things that you think about? What are the things that you scroll through? What are the things that occupy your mind and your time? Are they these things? I want to challenge you to fix your mind on him and let him speak into your life. You may not have the flexibility in your schedule like I do to have an hour, an hour and a half in the mornings. But dude, it could start with a verse and a prayer, can it? And it can start with a, it can start with a psalm or a proverb tomorrow morning a psalm or a proverb before your day gets going get your coffee read a proverb what's tomorrow tomorrow is the 19th read proverbs 19 tomorrow with your coffee and fix your thoughts on him and just see what he would do my question for you is last blank on your page can i hear god's voice through the noise? Can I discern between crowd and Christ? Do I know the difference between good advice and God advice? Let God speak and let him do what only he can do in your life. Mm -hmm.